This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and yes, I'm the Daniel in the Frankly part of this enterprise. Once again, it's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights. Thank you for joining me today, and believe me, it's an honor to be here today with you. Whether you're new to the Frankly Daniel Show or a long-time listener, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. My gosh, my golly, I have so much to, to share with you today, so we're going to get right into the show Last week, I wanted to talk about the Florida governor's announced run for the presidency. However, I got all wrapped up in the debt ceiling issues, and I just plumb ran out of time before, before I could get to Ron DeSantis and his presidential race. Nevertheless, it, it is still very, very early in this race, and a lot of things are bound to happen over the next 16 months. And the debt ceiling, I, I think, remains quite controversial. May I ask you, how, how did you like the outcome of that? What Was it the best Republicans could get? A lot of controversy about that. Truly, I don't know. But I think the bigger problem is the issue has caused a very serious divide in the Republican House to split wide open again between the ultra-MAGA caucus and just the plain old MAGA caucus which sounds an awful lot like Mike Dukakis, but it's not exactly the same. Now, there are at least 40 Republican House members who believe the only way to deal with the extreme left is to be on the extreme right, and when in power, like they are marginally now, to pursue a very aggressive conservative agenda. The thought is you must fight fire with fire. You must take to the offense and stop playing defense. And in principle, I agree. But the problem is that for some reason, Republicans could not perform during the midterms. Now, the net result is, as you know, the Republican House that is barely a Republican House. I mean, we only have like a five or six person margin, and that's really no margin at all, especially when you get a couple of real sticks in the mud on the far right. Now, the positive is that the Republican House has delivered some remarkably good bills in the five months of operation. But, however, uh, these Republican-generated House bills, they go nowhere in the Democrat-controlled Senate. And even when they get passed in the Senate, Joe Biden vetoes them. So at the moment, they're just largely symbolic. But this debt ceiling bill that the House had originally come up with was an opportunity for them to negotiate far more than I think they got. And they're not going to have that kind of leverage, although they say they will because they're going to go back to regular order and all that. But, but But it's very questionable. You can't do any of this if you don't win. There is no substitute for victory. And we've got to end this culture of losing uh, that's infected the Republican Party in recent years. Well, that was Governor Ron DeSantis stating the obvious just the other day in New Hampshire. Now, over my lifetime, I've probably given thousands of hours to the study of American history. I mean, I've always found it quite fascinating, especially all the wars, but all the political fights uh, in the Congress from the very beginning. And I can find no time that this nation was in a more fatally dangerous position than we are today. And I'm not the only one saying that. There's a lot of people, very knowledgeable people in history, in statecraft, in foreign policy that are sounding the same alarms. 
And let's face it, Joe Biden, he just doesn't get it. Either that or he's obliging China because he's under contract to the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, after all, allegedly, Biden took more than, what, some $80 million, or should I say the Bidens did, some $80 million from the Chinese since somewhere around 2014. But back to history. Abraham Lincoln's warning about a house divided is as true today as when he spoke it. Along with the Gettysburg Address, and probably his second inaugural address, his house-divided speech is one of the best-known of Lincoln's career. Now, the following words came from this best-known passage in that speech. Quote, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the House to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. Or it will become all one thing or the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction or its advocates will push it forward and it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. If you substitute the word woke for slave, the relevance of this statement becomes pertinent to today's cultural climate, don't you think? If you substitute the words pro-choice and pro-life, or illegal immigration and open borders, or the religion of climate change for slave, the relevance of this statement becomes pertinent to today's cultural climate. If you substitute the words socialism and capitalism for slave, the relevance of this statement becomes pertinent to today's economic climate. We are a house divided in so many ways, and most of these ways are fatal if we do not resolve them politically. While we have to pay attention to these divides that we have going on right here domestically, the leading existential threat isn't climate or some of these other things. The leading existential threat is China. And more broadly, the new Axis powers, the alliance really between China, Russia, and Iran. Now, Larry Kudlow on Fox Business rang this alarm again yesterday, right after Joe Biden delivered another mumbling, bumbling speech at the Air Force graduation in Colorado. Now, I want to play over the clip from the Air Force Academy commencement speech just quickly to look at this. Ed Lawrence played it. I want to play it again for you. Take a careful listen. The United States does not seek conflict or confrontation with China. China and the United States should be able to work together where we can to solve some global challenges like climate. But we are prepared for vigorous competition. So the point here that I want to make, for one thing, there is no cooperation with China on climate change. They keep opening hundreds of coal plants. They could care less about things like Paris climate targets. In fact, I don't really know any country that feels bound by the Paris climate targets except Joe Biden's America as he continues to wage war against fossil fuels and energy and food prices continue to rise at an alarming rate. But more broadly, 
The Bidens seem not to understand that we are not engaged in some friendly competition with China. The president talks about vigorous competition. It is much tougher than that. China wants dominance. It's not let's compete and maybe we'll all do better together. China wants to dominate America and its interests in every sphere of activity. Now, as I'm sure you know by now, Joe took a very nasty fall on stage at the Air Force Academy uh, this week. And I believe this is his fourth major fall. That depends on how you count these falls. I mean, the times that he went up the, the stairway to Air Force One, I think he fell three times, but they're just counting that as one. So that's cool. Uh, perhaps nothing could have been more metaphorically on time than Joe Biden's nasty fall as he finished his speech at the Air Force Academy. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we have become the laughingstock of the world, as if Afghanistan wasn't bad enough. But we have a president that is fall-prone, walking-prone, speech-challenged, and a cognitive cripple. I don't know if you remember when then-President Trump gave a commencement speech at West Point in 2020. The ramp up to the speaker's podium was steep and it was slick, and Trump walked down the ramp, as he has said, on my tippy toes, so as not to fall. Now, the propagandist media called for an immediate investigation into Trump's health, claiming he was unquestionably too old and too infirm to remain president. Now, here's an amusing clip from a Fox News show with Rachel Campos Duffy just the other day. Remember how the media reacted when all Trump did was walk gingerly down a pretty steep ramp at West Point? President Trump is facing some new questions about his health after an unsteady walk down a ramp. New questions about President Trump's health after his visit to West Point. The event sparked some concerns about the president's own health. It took him 10 minutes to walk down a ramp in the shuffle that alarmed a lot of people around the country. He says, what's wrong with the president of the United States? What's wrong with the president? He didn't want to slip on a ramp. Are you going to ask the same thing about Joe now that He's fallen and can't get up. By the way, Joe also criticized Trump for walking down a ramp. Look at how he steps and look how I step. Watch how I run up ramps and he stumbles down ramps. Okay, come on. Joe's empty vessel health doesn't doesn't even take into consideration his problems with past corruption. It's currently haunting his presidency. I mean, Joe Biden's corruption and misdeeds are so voluminous and egregious that all the king's horses and all the king's FBI and DOJ agents, they won't be able to put this archaic Humpty Dumpty back together again once the truth finally emerges from the Republican House's investigations. And as with the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, I don't think there's been a more critical presidential election than the one that's coming in 2024. Now, should Biden somehow prevail and become the Democratic Party nominee and eventually win another term, we can be assured that he will turn that presidency over to Kamala Harris ASAP. This is what the neo-Marxists in the White House are up to. That's my belief anyway. Personally, as I've said many times on this show, I don't think Joe's going to make it to the finish line to be the nominee.
the more the White House staff sequester him, the, the more questions come up. I say if Joe's health collapses, and I think that time is very near, and he cannot stand as the Democratic nominee, then I think all bets are off, and it's anyone's guess who's going to be the Democratic Party nominee. I don't think it will be Kamala Harris, and I think that Gavin Newsom is going to jump right in that race and will likely win that nomination. On the other hand, the race for the Republican Party's nominee is clearly between two people. And the reason I've mentioned China is that whoever becomes the Republican president in 2024, and God willing, he will be a conservative Republican, he must deal with China immediately before they swallow Taiwan and claim dominion over the South China Sea. So much trade goes through there, it's incredible. Not to mention the number of chips, high-end chips that come out of Taiwan. This would be a tremendous blow to our economy. And yes, China has already made the claim that they own the South China Sea. But if their navy continues to expand, while ours continues to shrink, they're going to be able to make that claim stick. So the battle on the Republican side is clearly between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And at the moment, Trump is ahead by a lot to say the least. But DeSantis has just officially entered the race, and I think what happens in the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries will probably determine who wins the nomination. Now, this week on the Larry Kudlow Show, Kellyanne Conway made the following points about how the Republican primaries operate, especially those after Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think Trump has a tremendous advantage right now on the winner-take-all states. We had seven in 2016. We have 17 this time. Mm. So the winner gets all of the delegates. Mm. Everyone else gets zero. He also has a very good delegate program. Maybe DeSantis does too, but I haven't read about it anywhere. So in 17 state Republican primaries, the winner takes all the delegates. If... Ten or more Republicans stay in the race, and there looks like there's going to be 12 or 13 or 14 as things are stacking up. If it, at least 10 of them stay in the race for probably half of these primaries, Trump is assured of winning all the delegates in those early primaries, and he's well on his way to the nomination. Now, I, I suppose it's too early to start a countdown on how many days there are before Christmas this year. It used to be a sort of a favorite childhood activity, but that's another story. But there really are people counting, if you can believe it, the number of days until the inauguration of the 47th president of the United States. And I'm happy to report, as as of this weekend, there are either 596 or 595 days left, depending on whether you are listening to this Frankly Daniel show on Saturday or Sunday. Now, today's show is full of audio clips of Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail and in one-on-one interviews that he recently gave to a select number of journalists. Now, I believe the one-on-one interviews where the governor interacts with one interviewer are probably the best way to get to understand the issues he has to deal with these past four years, and there's been no shortage of them. It's one of the reasons he took this extra time before getting in the race to finish this year's legislative session. He wanted to put a cap on all the things they set out to do. 
and they have done a ton. In fact, it's almost too many things to report. Now, the interview I have in mind is part of a 45-minute interview the governor gave to John Stossel the day before his, his actual kickoff. Most of you know John as an American libertarian television presenter. He's an author. He's a consumer journalist. Mostly consumer journalist is what most people know him for and a pundit. Uh, he's known for uh, his career as a host on ABC News, Fox Business Network, Reason TV, and the like. And I'm sure if you saw John Stossel on TV, you'd, you'd recognize him immediately. Now, before I get to these clips and to some from the governor's recent speeches in Iowa and New Hampshire, I want to disclose to you my personal thoughts about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Now, first, I've been a Trumper from the very beginning. I voted for Trump in both the 2016 and 2020 primaries in Florida and in the general elections. I believe that had Trump not been illegally and viciously attacked by the administrative state, the FBI, the CIA, and the House Democrats that brought two impeachment proceedings against him, had they not put him through the Mueller investigation and other various lawsuits, Trump would have been declared the greatest president ever. And that's even considering all his nasty tweets and name-calling and everything else. His list of accomplishments is really impressive. And when you recount all that he has accomplished before COVID-19 and how he had the nation recovering in mid to late 2020, you just have to be amazed. Can you imagine if Trump had the FBI and DOJ protecting him against spurious charges like they protect Joe against real charges? Oh my gosh, the things he could have gotten done. And like all psychological projection, all the Democratic establishment and the propagandist media has accused Trump of, they are still illegally uh, doing themselves. It's an awful lot like the issues of falls. President Trump doesn't fall, but he's very careful going down a ramp and holy hell breaks loose. And Biden stumbles. I mean, it was a terrible stumble all the other day. And uh, yeah, no, no one mentions it, except maybe on Fox News and Newsmax. His infirmity is somehow just not an issue. Yet Joe continues to this day to say, watch me, watch me, when people bring up questions about his current abilities. Well, Joe, we, we've been watching you. I mean, let, let's face it, the ruthless Democrats took illegal and, at the very least, unethical advantage of COVID-19. And they went ahead and changed election rules in selected states. And in my opinion, they, they won a very dirty, immoral, and most likely fraudulent election in 2020. And we have been suffering the consequences of that. Ballot harvesting is a fraudulent practice, especially the way the Democrats went about it. I mean, who really believes that someone coming by your house to collect your mail in ballot postage paid already, is doing you a favor as they bundle these ballots and allegedly take them to an authorized collection box. I'm happy to say that since the 2020 election, ballot harvesting is now illegal in the great state of Florida, thanks to Ron DeSantis and the Republican legislature. 
And for those of you who are familiar with Zuckerbucks, having to do with the near half billion dollar donation by Mark Zuckerman during that 2020 campaign. This kind of activity is also now illegal in Florida. I gotta tell you, I have resented Joe Biden's claim that his singular election saved America, that the nation was in COVID-19 crisis and the economy was in complete collapse and chaos just before Lion Joe took the oath of office. Now, the truth was the economy was already recovering and humming along at a 4 to 5% GDP, and inflation was somewhere just below 2%. Then Joe comes along and he hires the mandate maniacal Dr. Anthony Fauci, the guy that caused Trump all the problems. And millions of Americans were fired or quit their jobs because they refused to take the vaccine. And these employment losses decimated our supply chain, not to mention the medical harm to millions of people who were forced to take the shot or lose their jobs. Not to mention the unconstitutional clandestine spying on Americans speaking out about their personal negative experiences with the COVID-19 vaccine and the FBI and other Biden administration members, what they did by censoring millions of us on social media posts. And this and so much more is what crashed our economy. With America in a tailspin, what is Joe Biden looking to do to us if he wins another fatal term as president? Rachel Campus Duffy speaking on this very subject. What exactly is Joe Biden running on? The economy is in danger of recession. His foreign policy blunders have created an America with less power and influence, while unholy alliances led by China keep growing. And oh yeah, the massive corruption engulfing his presidency shows no sign of abating. There's another question. Where is Joe? He's running for re-election, but he hasn't even held a campaign event yet. Allow me to share another audio clip of Fox News's Peter Ducey asking the Biden press propagandist, Karine Jean-Pierre, the following question just the other day. What is President Biden's top domestic priority? <laughs> Well, we've always we've always been very clear that his economic clearly his economic policy is something that's uh, uh, important, especially when he walked into this administration. The economy was on its head uh, because of the COVID response that was uh, um, uh, that was not ex- that was not existing and not as, uh, with the last administration. And what the president had to do, right, to make sure that we were dealing with COVID, to make sure that we were dealing with the economy. And so he put forth, along with Democrats, and also in a bipartisan way, some. some historic pieces of legislation that turned the economy around. Well, I have to give her credit. She is right. Biden turned this economy upside down. His reverse Midas touch not only crashed the economy, but his $1.9 trillion, I can't even believe the title of this bill, the American Rescue Act, ignited inflation, the highest inflation in, in 40 years. And now, instead of being able to get a 2.5% mortgage, mortgages are going cheap at 7%. Prices continue to climb at the supermarket, and we've recently lost 15 to 20% of the value of every dollar we earn. And the Democrats will, with all probability, spend another $4 trillion by the end of this debt ceiling agreement. 
Now, the Labor Department released the May New Jobs Report just just on Friday, showing the economy added 339,000 new jobs in May, beating expectations, I guess, of around 190,000. Now, most of these jobs were not high-paying category jobs. Nevertheless, the Federal Reserve is likely to raise interest rates again because they believe that inflation is rearing its head again. And at the next meeting, because of this strong growth, we're going to get dinged with higher interest rates. Now, distressingly, the Federal General Accounting Office, the GAO, issued a report in early May with the following findings. Quote, the federal government faces an unsustainable long-term fiscal future. At the end of fiscal year 2022, debt held by the public was about 97% of gross domestic product. Projections from the Office of Management and Budget and the Department of the Treasury and Congressional Budget Office and the GAO all show that the current fiscal policy is unsustainable over the long term. And I would interject it's probably unsustainable over the short run as well. Debt held by the public is projected to grow at a faster pace than the size of the economy. Debt held by the public is projected to reach its historical high of 106% of GDP within 10 years and continue to grow at an increasing pace. The GAO projects that this ratio will reach more than twice the size of the economy by 2051, absent any changes in revenue and spending policies. The fiscal year 2022 deficit was the fourth largest ever. At almost $1.4 trillion, the fiscal year 2022's federal budget deficit was the fourth largest recorded nominal federal deficit in history, behind the budget deficits in fiscal 2021, 2020, and 2009. Changes in the deficit are the result of changes in government spending and in revenues. I'd like to point out that all of these were Biden-Harris or Obama-Biden years, with the exception of 2020 under President Trump. In 2020, the bulk of federal spending on COVID was the largest reason for the deficit that year. So three of the four largest deficit budget deficits we'd ever run have been under the Biden administration. And there's more of that to come. No one expects this budget this year to be anywhere close to being balanced. Well, we've hit halftime. So hit the head, hit the fridge, and hurry right back. You know you're loved here on the Frankly Daniels Show. And I'm not kidding. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. 
So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. AmericaOutloud.com If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Frankly Daniel Show. Now, let me say, if Trump is on the primary ballot in Florida, I will vote for him. If he is the Republican nominee in November of 2024, I will vote for him. But only because, as it stands now, only Trump has the fight, stamina, and importantly, the experience to set this nation back on a path it was on before COVID-19. Now, Trump got, he got quite an education in four years. And I believe this gives him a distinct advantage over Ron DeSantis. Also, as governor, there are issues that DeSantis has little to no experience with, and Trump does. For instance, China and national energy policy. That has to do with fossil fuels. Yes, Trump made mistakes during his four years. Some very bad ones, like nominating Christopher Wray, as the FBI director, and a few more personnel disasters. But he's had four years to think about those four years in the White House, and he has watched, like we all have, to what Joe Biden and Joe's puppet masters have done to us all in a very short time. But I have to say, I'm very conflicted over the Trump-DeSantis choice. I've lived in Florida for 10 years now, I voted for the governor in both the 2018 and 2022 primaries and the general elections, and I was a vocal supporter of Ron and the state legislators. And what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida, a state decidedly purple at best in 2018, is now solidly red today. And this is nothing short of astonishing. Now, Donald Trump can take credit for helping Ron in his first election as governor. But everything thereafter, Ron has done on his own. And I think it'd be very hard for many other people to have duplicated what he has done in Florida. 
And without doubt, the political and economic miracle that is Florida today is due to Ron DeSantis' leadership and courage to withstand a vicious left backlash by those Democrats, those progressives, who believe Florida was their state, much in the same manner as Disney thought they owned Florida. Let me say a few words about Disney before I get into these clips. DeSantis was the first to tackle the issues of gender identity and sexual orientation as cultural and political issues here in education and public education in the state of Florida. Now, the teachers' unions and the progressive ideological uh, groups they had a big push on in our public schools, just like they have all over the country, to indoctrinate very young students in gender identity and sexual orientation issues, along with critical race theory and a host of other just ridiculous things. Ron didn't take on Disney. Disney came after the governor and came after the laws the legislature were putting in place to have these issues not discussed as core curricula for kindergartners through third grade. And Disney flew in the face of that and decided after going along with the legislation to come out and be against the legislation and very vocally against. And ever since then, they've continued on this track to to even change their classic uh, movies uh, to involve pronouns, all the other things, all the other accoutrements that go with this ideology. Now, the other Republican candidates are critical of DeSantis for having taken on Disney, but there are two different issues with him. One was all the cultural misappropriations they were doing and gender misappropriations. Uh, But the other thing had to do with Disney's special carve-out that they had in the state, 44 square miles of Florida, basically, they owned without owning it. And that has changed uh, through the legislature, making them subject to all the same taxes, all the same rules, all the rest of us have to live by here in Florida. Personally, as a Disney fan, through all my childhood and my most of my adult years until now, I'm terribly disappointed that they have gotten on this very uh, unhealthy, woke uh, position that they've taken with their products. We see already, but... You know, fools go where fools have gone before, and we've seen that with Bud Light and with Target recently. So that's that on the Disney for now. We already know that uh, Donald Trump can be president. He has been president. The question remains to be answered is does Ron DeSantis have what it takes to go from a governorship, albeit a a very large state, to the presidency? And, And I think he does. And if Trump had decided not to run, or for some reason Trump is taken out by the legal proceedings now before him, DeSantis would clearly be my, my uh, second choice. Listen, if Florida were a country, Florida would be the 13th largest economy in the world. Florida is number one in net in-migration, I mean legal immigration or migration, that is from those states such as New York, Illinois, and other blue states. <laughs> Yes, laugh out loud. Of course, a thousand people a day moving to Florida has put a lot of pressure on our housing market, but the economy is booming in Florida. It is just booming. I believe the following clips are more insightful than listening to uh, stump speeches that all the candidates go through in their early campaigns. 
Here's the first clip. Likewise, school choice. Florida now leads on school choice. You have $8,000 that any parent can take to a private school. They can switch to another public school. Why is this good? Well, ultimately, uh, it empowers people, particularly low-income families and a lot of single mothers who are working but don't have enough money to necessarily send their kid to the school of their choice. And so you now have that ability in Florida. And we've had school choice for a while, but we really expanded it. Here's why I think it's, it's, it's worked. The public schools have improved in Florida as a result of school choice. You think, well, wait a minute. You as a parent may be going out of the public school. How's the public school doing better? Because when they know because that- Because of that. Exactly. When they know the parents have empowerment to make a choice, they have to up their game because they want to attract students too. So if you look in school districts in Florida, most of the school districts offer intra-district school choice programs. So in a place like Miami-Dade, 70% of our students go to a school other than their neighborhood public school. Some of it's private scholarship, some of it's public charter schools, but even within the school district, they're going to magnet programs or specialty programs. And so I think what's happened, it's created a culture of competition where school districts, charter schools, and private schools compete for parents' basic approval, and they know that a parent's empowered. If you're not doing a good job, the parent actually has the ability to vote with their feet and send their kids somewhere else. And competition does make us all better. Absolutely. When you have a monopoly, uh, what incentive do you have to offer new things or to innovate? You don't have any incentive to do that. In Florida, you do. And of course, the money follows the kid. So just from a financial perspective, the school district wants to attract as many people because if they don't, then, then they wouldn't have as much for, per student. I take it you can imagine just how outraged and resistant the teachers unions were because of the loss of students from public schools. But all of this is based in a very simple concept. It's competition, and competition makes us all better. It's a merit-based system, and it's one that the left totally rejects. This has been the biggest news, but I think the biggest issue facing America is that we're going broke. So let's talk about that. Florida certainly isn't. You have a surplus here. What would you do if you were president? I mean, entitlements are bankrupting us. So I think that um, you know, Florida is instructive because you know, we have the second lowest debt per capita in the country. So our economy is $1.2 trillion plus. Our debt's $20 billion. I mean, so compared to the federal government, the debt is bigger than the entire national economy. Um, and it's gotten, it's gotten very, very bad. Part of what we're able to do in Florida, we have a balanced budget requirement. So even if some of these guys want to spend more, they have to make decisions. And the federal government doesn't have that. I think they should have it because as a politician, these guys... If they cut something you like, you're not going to like that. If they raise your taxes, you're not going to like that. So the easiest choice is to charge it on the credit card. If they were forced to make the decisions, I think you'd get better situation. The other thing that we have here, I have a line item veto as governor. So last year, I vetoed 3% of the budget. They said it on my desk, I vetoed the line items, and we saved $3.3 billion. Uh, I think it would help to have the president do that because they give these big omnibus bills, um, and, and it's just a total disaster. Now, in terms of the spending, uh, 
look at the discretionary spending over the last five or six years. I mean, huge increases in discretionary spending, you know, in, additional, in addition to some of the entitlements. Discretionary I mean, meaning? What Congress does on a yearly basis. And so some of the things that are, that are called entitlement state. programs, they're just in law and they, they're on autopilot. Congress can do nothing and they continue. But the typical budget that you do for the federal government to run all the agencies, they have to do that annually. And so what they've done is really starting with COVID, jack up the spending, the CARES Act, you had 2.2 trillion at the December 2020, Biden came in and put it on steroids with his American Rescue Plan, which was totally gratuitous, the infrastructure stuff. And so what they're doing is the Fed starting in March of 2020, inflated the currency, really did a big money supply increase. They're spending like drunken sailors. And of course, you're going to have inflation when that ends up happening. Now the Fed's had to hike interest rates. Why does that? Why is that important for the budget? Because the interest on the debt is now this massive line item uh, that we have to service our debt with. And so that's gone up hundreds of billions of dollars uh, just since then. Look, I think they're fighting in Washington now. If you just went back, to the amount of spending that Barack Obama proposed in his last budget for this year, it would be a dramatic reduction in terms of what they're actually spending. And so when they increase spending, they just keep the baseline and then keep going up from there. So you need to return the amount of money that the government's spending to pre-COVID levels. How? What would you cut? Well, you just you, you just have to, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of money that's been in the kitty for COVID, all this stuff that has not been spent. You can easily claw that back and you just reset these agencies with the baseline. You know, in Florida, we don't do uh, what's called baseline budgeting. Baseline budgeting is whatever you got last year, you automatically add and that's the starting point. Here, it's zero based. You know, you as an agency may have had, you know, $100 million last year. You get zero and you've got to justify to me before I put it in my budget. And so- This is unusual in government. Well, it is, but there's nothing wrong with just going back and saying, okay, let's start fresh. Where should we be? But you're, you know, Congress has not shown the inclination to do it. I know they're fighting over some of this stuff now, but it's almost like to show any spending restraint uh, is, is almost verboten there. Here's the thing. Even if you didn't cut, if you just held constant or even reduce the rate of increase, that would make a difference. They are adding more and more every single year with, with really no end in sight. Now, I'll tell you that Ron is completely schooled in economics and accounting and on public policy. And he had to learn all of this as to how the legislature worked and to what he could possibly do economically to advance the state, to budget, to do the other kinds of things. And so I don't think he's going to have a problem moving into the federal government learning the same kinds of issues. He was in Congress for six years already. He does know some of that system. But uh, you have to say, for someone who just got in by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin chin in 2018, he learned quickly. He accomplished a lot. And this discretionary spending really is small compared to the entitlements you mentioned. And you said Congress can't do anything about it. But with enough votes, Congress can take action. You once talked about raising retirement age. I mean, don't we have to do something? So, right. I mean, so what you look at is you look at what's the trajectory of the programs and, you know, what can you do not to affect somebody that's that's getting benefits, 
but what can you do for people that are younger? And then you, you know you have an opportunity to, to make decisions in your life. Uh, and here's the thing. I think a lot of younger people like me are, are receptive to this because I don't assume we're going to get any of this at this point right now. And so to to, to make whatever changes, but uh, I, I would not do things for people that are currently receiving these benefits because they've been made promises and we've got to fulfill them. But in the future, younger people, you're how old? 44. And you don't expect to get Social Security, Medicare? I mean, I think it's, I mean, if you just look at the trajectory uh, that we're on now, there, there will likely be uh, things that, that are done that'll make it very, very difficult. And so I think the theory behind, you know, identifying that, uh, making sure that, that the programs are, are consistent with, uh, you know, demographic change and whatnot, uh, is just that, that this could be done much more smoother. Instead, you could have some really, really significant um, um, turbulence uh, 10, 15 years into the future. You did once say we need to restructure these entitlements. And simply for saying that, and Republicans now run away from this, Donald Trump is running this gross ad that has you sticking your fingers in pudding and saying, DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements, like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Well, it's interesting. You know, he wrote a book uh, saying that, you know, the retirement age should be 70. People shouldn't, it should be. shouldn't even retire and all this other stuff. And so now, now he's doing that. But I think a lot of those, those are really Democrat attacks uh, when you see the way it is. The idea that somehow, you know, I'm, I'm Florida governor, like, like I have elderly constituents. Like, like of course, we're going we're gonna to honor the promises to the elderly. But you also have a responsibility to think, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down to the future. Um, you know, how do you do it in a way that, that is sustainable? So, so I think a lot of those attacks are really uh, misplaced. Here's something I don't understand about Donald Trump. I know he's competitive, but I don't know why he's running these ads in Florida that are taking knocks at uh, Ron DeSantis. Now, Trump moved his whole family down here to Florida. If Florida's that bad, he's certainly welcome to go someplace else. But he's 40 points ahead already. And, and I don't think that Ron is really a serious threat to the way this is going to all shake out. So I don't understand why he's already taking shots at him. And this business about him being all incensed that, that Ron didn't decide to just uh, wait until 28 instead of 24 to run as if he owed Trump something, I, I don't buy into that either. I think that Trump is the best candidate for the presidency, but I don't think anybody owes him anything at this point. And are you, as reported, a slob who eats pudding with your finger? Anonymous sources, that's, that's what the media does. They try to, try to smear. But if that's the worst they can come up with, I must be doing okay. Why do you call them the corporate media? Because at the end of the day, I mean, you have these uh, entrenched institutions that have been there a long time. They've developed a certain culture. And I think it's been a culture that, yeah, they'd always had a liberal bent for sure. But I think in the last five or 10 years, uh, they've developed a much more partisan edge. And I think that they're pursuing that agenda. And, you know, honestly, that's not out of character for most of American history. When the founders uh, generation, you had a Hamilton paper and a Jefferson paper, and they were very stridently partisan. And that's just how they presented the news. Um, but what bugs me and I think a lot of Republicans about it is they pretend that somehow they're objective. They're not. They're pursuing their agenda. And, and I get that and they have a right to do it. But I'm not going to sit there and, and humor them and, and say that, um, you know, that they treat them as some neutral arbiter. One 
Apparently, Ron had a dust-up with somebody in the media in New Hampshire yesterday, and there's nothing but articles on it. Pick up any liberal uh, website or newspaper or anything. (laughs) There's nothing but discussions about it as if this was some kind of uh, major faux pas on on the campaign. It's hilarious. But Ron's got a good perspective on this. True, through history, this is absolutely true. You should have seen the papers during the American Revolutionary times or uh, during the Civil War. There were hundreds and hundreds of papers across the country, and they were as partisan, and the things that they would put in these papers, you couldn't even believe that you were reading some of this stuff. So things are out of character today, but there's times you have to push back, and Ron's been very effective at doing that here in Florida. The military. Should we spend more on the military? Look, I think we need more capacity, but I think we have a huge bureaucracy that needs to be reduced. And I think the civilian Pentagon needs to be reduced. I think we need to shake up the uniform services. And I think you need to audit the Pentagon. So I would have more ships. I would have more capability. There's a lot of bloat in the Pentagon that we should tackle. You resisted Obama, unlike other Republicans, when he wanted to send soldiers to Syria. So my view is, and having served in Iraq, um, I want a very strong military. I want peace through strength. But what I don't want to do is get involved in some commitment that there's not a clear rationale for what we're doing and there's not a concrete uh, identification of what, what does victory mean? And I think we get in trouble. Like in Iraq, we were there first for WMD, then that wasn't, then it was like create a democracy, but that's not a military objective. You know, we could go after the terrorists and that's fine, But creating a a democracy, that's not even in our hands. And it ended up being something that didn't work out. So, you know, if you're going to use military force, you got to have a concrete idea of what you're trying to accomplish. And there's got to be a clear sense of victory. And I think our foreign policy establishment has wanted to do things like the Syria, which are more amorphous um, and they're not really grounded in our core national security. DeSantis has been criticized for his views on Ukraine. The war in Ukraine, and I don't think he's had a fair shake at that, and I think he's got to flesh out that policy a little bit more as to where he's coming from. But my take on it from what he has said is that it's not so much that we're supporting Ukraine right now. It's that it was a war that never needed to happen, that Biden bungled the whole thing, and Afghanistan led to that. And you have to wonder after we left all the stuff that we left in Afghanistan and such an embarrassment on top of that, we turn right around and we're borrowing money from China to, so that we can support Ukraine. And the Europeans in NATO still aren't, you know, hauling their fair share in the whole situation, which was a major issue with Donald Trump. And he was dead right on. Russia is a mouse compared to the lion and tigers that are in China. And that's where we ought to be worrying about our emphasis, not whether we're going to degrade the Russian army any more than it's going on. And I think it really is mostly Europe's problem as to what to do about Ukraine instead of mostly our problem. Well, then likewise, why not end the drug war, which has gone on for 40, 50 years and hasn't accomplished anything? Well, look, I mean, I think we're now in a new era um, with this with the rise of fentanyl. And I think you have to be very, very tough when you're talking about the supply of fentanyl. And we do. We have strong penalties for that. They market it to children now, um, putting it in candy. Still coming in, but rules don't stop it. Well, but I think that uh, there's an opportunity to do do more uh, on interdiction, do more on holding the cartels accountable. Uh, But also, we focus on the demand side. 
Uh, we have programs in school to just let kids know that, hey, experimenting with something that you think may not be that harmful, if it's laced with fentanyl, you, you could die. That's just the truth. And so we want to give them that information. We also have a coordinated opioid response uh, network, which really tries to treat people. So if someone goes and overdoses in a hospital, to just save them and put them back on the street, they're going to relapse. And so now we actually are with them. We can provide medication, uh, get them where they need to go so that they can be uh, gainfully employed and live their lives while managing this addiction, which is a very difficult thing. So we, we believe it's a, it's a full spectrum, but I do think the supply and the accountability needs to be addressed as well. So I would not say just bring in any fentanyl you want. And prohibition didn't change anything? We didn't learn that we created Al Capone and there are no beer gangs anymore. Yeah, but I think the difference between that is, is like the country had a, had a proud tradition of, of drinking and it was just something that we, we had done from the very beginning. Then they tried to outlaw it and this had been something that had been part of the culture. Whereas I think you think of things like heroin and fentanyl and this stuff, these have always been prohibited. So to, to legalize that, I think you'd end up seeing an increase in use. And I think that would be bad. Yes, I have to agree. As someone in public health, I would say just because we've had alcohol legal for all these years, for, for eons of time, in fact, this makes no sense to go ahead and legalize every psychedelic drug and psychoactive drug known to man, especially in the higher concentrations like marijuana is today. Makes no sense. Most of the people who fight to get here want to work, yes? So here, I think it's a mix. I mean, I think clearly uh, what you've had come across the border uh, there have been folks involved in narcotics trafficking. There have been general criminal aliens. There have been people who have been deported previously. I'd say the bulk of these people are basically being trafficked by the drug cartels, and they're basically being promised an ability to stay in America, you know, work, and they'll make more money here, even if they're working illegally, than they will there. So, so, so I think that's true. But I also think just as a country, you've got to have a process in place. Uh, you've got to make sure that the people are coming, that we know who they are, and that they're serving uh, needs of the American people. Immigration is ultimately what's in the best interest of the people we have here that are citizens. No foreigner has a right to come to the United States, and we as a free people have a right to, to determine what those uh, criteria and what those limits are. And if you look at our legal immigration system, the overwhelming number of slots have nothing to do with merit or, or, or talent. Uh, you have things like the diversity lottery, which should be abolished. You have things like chain migration. Look, I'm all about a U.S. citizen bringing a foreign spouse and getting them in the immigration 100 percent. But to bring like the, the, the cousins and stuff and like they get in line over somebody that may be offering uh, doesn't make any sense. And so if you look at like a Canada or Australia, what do they do? They do merit based. Uh, immigration. And, and I think that's a much better uh, way to do it than what we've done here in the United States since like pretty much the mid 60s, where we've had the diversity lottery and all these other things. And to clarify, these other countries say, if you are a computer engineer, if you have specific skills, we'll let you in. So they have what, what are the needs of the public? Uh, what are the needs that we have? And then they gear the immigration towards a merit base, whereas something like the United States, the diversity lottery is literally just ping pong balls where some country gets chosen and then people come in from that country on a lottery basis, which makes no sense in terms of serving our national interests. Next. After months of heated protests in Florida, don't say gay is now in effect. The hot issue now, sex education in schools. Florida banned public school teachers from teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity. First, 
through third grade, and now even that's gone, 12th grade. Why? Well, so what the legislature is doing, they're, they're adding through eighth as the statutory prohibition, and so, so I support that. Well, I, look, I think the reason is is because you know this is something that is really, they're trying to pursue an agenda. Like when you're telling a student that they may have been born in the wrong body, that's just not appropriate uh, for, for our public school system or any school system. So let's focus on the academics, let's focus on the core subjects. Those matters of something like transgender or, or probing some, some student's sexuality, that is not appropriate for the schools. And so the parents wanna have those discussions. Many parents would probably not wanna talk about transgender. Some may want to, but I don't see how it, it can work in the school system in a way that, that, that pleases very many people. And so we're focusing on the basics. You know, you're gonna get a, a traditional education in Florida and some of the other stuff that's come in very, very recently. You know, we're gonna leave that to the parents uh, to discuss with their kids. Well, this is all the time I have today to talk about Ron DeSantis. Maybe next week we'll get a few more clips in. I hope that you have found this informative. There's so much more to learn about these candidates. Thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to The Frankly Daniels Show.